Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, listeners, to episode 125 of the Odd Nauseam Podcast. I'm down here in the bunker with my good friend and co-host, uh, Dr. David Noe. Uh, how are you feeling today, Dave? I'm hanging in there. All right. Excellent. Persevering. Sometimes that's all we can ask that's for. All we can, that's all you're asking of me today? That is all I'm asking of you today. Uh, right? I appreciate so, that. Setting the bar, you know, medium low. So for, Setting the bar. Yeah. I thought you said sitting in the bar. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> setting the bar. Setting the bar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I found that the way to exceed expectations yeah. is just to keep them very low. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember telling, uh, telling, canceling a class. Right. I'm telling them on Wednesday, like, I can't be here Friday. And um, so we're not going to have class. And in kind of that, that rush of relief that goes through them. Like, yes. Wow, right. And so they was, love it. They love it. Right. And so it's just kind of, um, there's a line in a kind of an old Dilbert cartoon right. that, that says something about like canceling a meeting is just, you're just torturing your, your employees less. Right. right? And that's all, that's all they want is to be yes. tortured less. Well, it's kind of <laughs> unique to education. Perhaps we have said this on the show before. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, education is one of the few things people are eager to pay for and then not receive. <laughs> it's very true. Class is canceled. This is wonderful. This is great. I'll get nothing for my money. Right, right, right. Right. Yeah. I, I often have that, feel that same rush myself as if, I, if I've made plans for a Friday night yes. and they fall through. Yes. It's like, thank goodness. That's because <laughs> you are a thoroughgoing introvert. <laughs> it is true. Go right? out and have fun. It sounds appealing until the moment of truth arrives. Right. And then, no, I just rather stay home by my couch. Exactly. Right. But it's kind of sad. It's like going to the gym too. Is like, I often like, oh, I don't want to do this, but I'm always glad I did. Never regret having gone to the gym. Never. Never. And speaking of going to the gym, yes, it's not time for the ads, no, it's- but it is the subject of today's episode. Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about? Well, it? first, I need to ask how you're doing. Oh, I'm doing, I'm doing very, very well. Because loving, that's the formula. I love in the summer weather. I just this this morning, uh, my wife is out of town, and so I got myself and the boys out of the house. We went and did a, a hike around a lake up nice. near, up near Rockford, which is just north of Grand Rapids, right? Here, and it was it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. And the beautiful sunshine out under the trees. Uh, so I'm feeling invigorated. Yes, Michigan uh, summertime. What are we? Um, Mid July almost mm-hmm. can be very delightful. It, it can be right. And um, in terms of very delightful, here's a segue. Next week, I am excited about this. We yeah. are having our second annual um, colloquium Latinum Istivum, oh, or nice. our summer Latin colloquium. Fantastic. So there are twelve scholars from around the nation convening in Woodland, Michigan. Where's that? Um, well, it's down near Hastings. Okay, yeah. yeah. And uh, we're all going to live in this communal setting, uh, 12 individuals in this really nice large house. And we're going to be studying Latin together for five days. Wow. Six or seven intense sessions per day. Man. Well, with a great hospitality crew provided by my family. And um, see, Monday it's going to be Seneca. Mm-hmm. Tuesday, it's the Church Father Lactantius. Uh, Wednesday, Bernard of Clairvaux, or Bernie, as his friends called him. Right. Uh, Thursday, we're bringing back Erasmus, uh, whom we studied last year. Mm-hmm. And Friday is uh, Theodore Beza. Nice. Excellent. So running the gamut, the whole 
the whole history, you might say, of the Latin language in a snapshot there. That sounds fantastic. I'm, I'm surprised that uh, Cicero didn't make the cut this year. Well, he was there last year. He was, okay. And, okay. you know, I could study just Cicero all day, every day. I know this. But not everybody can do that. Right. We've got to have a little uh, variety. Excellent. So it's going to be a really rip-roaring good time. And very, so you have people coming in from all across the country. Let's see. Yeah, very convivial. Someone from Alabama, uh, I think four individuals from North Carolina, one from Portland, Oregon. Wow. Um, some folks from, let's see... Where else? Uh, Virginia, the state of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, just a, quite a quite a cross-section of American Latinity. Do you see, um, the, just from the few, uh, few of the places you mentioned, do you see that as a, partly a reflection of some of this kind of this classical revival that I hear about like in the southeast of the country? Uh, that, I think so, but that, I think that that's broader than just the southeast. It is. Um, if we look at those who are downloading the Ad Nauseam podcast, yeah. it's not only the most populous states... It's also those where there is a large uh, contingent of classical schools and people learning Latin, both okay. you know, public schools and classical schools. So California, Texas, Florida, Virginia, and New York. Okay. Uh, those are not the most populous states, though they're pretty high. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's where is, uh, there's a lot of uh, people studying Latin, listening to the podcast, and then some of them coming uh, to study Latin with me next week. Fantastic. Well, that sounds great. So I- I'm very encouraged about that. I'll give a... Um, I'll give a report on that in a future episode and say how it went. The listeners might remember we talked about this a little bit last year. Yeah, 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 yeah. Now, is, um, is um, only Latin allowed to be spoken during these uh, We years? will have some Latin-only sessions for sure. Yeah. But no, it's going to be a mix. A mix. I don't, ha- I don't draw a um, sharp line in the sand, you might say. I yeah. think that makes people too uncomfortable. Yeah, I can, I can And see frankly, that. my skill level is not quite high enough to maintain that uh, consistently without extreme fatigue. Sure, So. Yeah. I mean, it can be done, but it's just very taxing. Yeah. So we take breaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speak some English. Excellent. Well, that sounds great. I can't wait to hear the, yeah. the report. Thanks, Jeff. Yeah. So um, you have tentatively entitled this one, Whoa, <laughs> Milo, Come On, Come On, Let's Go. Right. And I'm hoping that that doesn't end up being the title. because I, <laughs> I had to look it up because it was vaguely familiar. And then, of course, uh, it's Kenny Loggins. Yes. It's the Footloose movie. Yes, right. And right, uh, right. he needed some something to rhyme so he put in the name milo milo and i think marie gets a rhyme in there. right i mean that's a cheese big jack get back exactly right so it's a jupiter-sized cheese ball of a song but when i was thinking about milo unfortunately that's what popped into my that's head. what came to your right came to your mind so i, I penciled that in. okay so between now maybe <laughs> and when we release we drop this episode we'll come up with something better maybe? i hope so i hope so having I, said that now we both know <laughs> this is the title this is the t- okay <laughs> So we're going to be talking about Milo. Who is he and, and why does anyone care? Well, Milo is what is uh, this legendary or I guess semi-legendary athlete um, from the 6th century BC. Okay. He came from Sicily. And um, over the years, over the centuries, there were all these stories attached to him about his feats of strength and his um, the, uh, what the amount of drink and food he could put away right. and, and all of these kind of crazy things. He's kind of a, a, a living day, real, real live, breathing Heracles. Okay. Yeah. So... Um, so today's episode is devoted to the topic of athletics, you're saying? Well, yeah, and specifically Milo's place in kind of the story of ancient athletics. I think I would love, you know, uh, someday uh, on the pod to do a an episode or two. What, you're, you're calling it the pod? Did I say that? I'm you sorry. I'm sorry, the podcast, right? <laughs> right? Thank you for checking me on that. I'm right? just giving you grief. I know, uh, deservedly so. Um, but to do an episode or two on the Olympic Games yes. or, or the kind of the Pythian Games or right. something along those lines. And so I think we'll, we'll dip into that a little bit sure. today. But, but through the lens of this really interesting character of Milo of, 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 of Croton. Right. Yeah. So Croton in uh, southern Italy. 
Yes. Right? Yep. One of the many Greek colonies there in the boot. Yep. And uh, so I think we should just jump right into it. Yeah. And uh, Jeff, you have our opening quote. Is that right? I do. This comes from an article called On the Gluttony of Ancient Greek Athletes um, by one Jan Bazant from a, uh, a journal called uh, Folia Philologica from way back in 1982. Wow. And he writes... Athletics in Greece did not keep pace with the growing medical knowledge, nor did they profit very much from the experience accumulated by generations of Greek trainers. The myth was the main authority of Greek athletes and Heracles their paragon, especially at the beginning in the 6th century BC. The depictions of athletes of that time clearly accentuate physical strength, the most frequent athletic types being boxers and wrestlers. This evidence is corroborated by contemporary literature, where, too, the typical athletic star is a strong man. Those famous athletes of the 6th century BC were celebrated in legends that spoke of their own tour de force and veracity. Greeks of that time delighted in stories about athletes who won a heifer and then ate it at a sitting. <laughs> so we pause there a minute. Yeah. So to win a heifer, this was a common prize right. in some athletic competition is livestock. Yes, exactly. Right. right. A meal on the hoof. Yes, yes, yes. So um, not to, I, I mean, I don't doubt the credentials of, of Mr. Bazant. Um, but just in looking a little bit around, I couldn't find any other stories recorded about somebody getting a heifer and eating it, eating it in one sitting, except for about Milo. I haven't heard that either, frankly. And right. I've looked into this a little bit. Yeah. Uh, because remember when we were telling the story of Darius and, and Tellus yeah. uh, from the Aeneid yes. and the, the killing of the prize steer, it wasn't a heifer, I think it was a steer, mm -hmm. at the end, but no mention of eating it in no. one sitting. No, 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 no. So, it's like when you drive through Amarillo, Texas. You ever been there? I never have. Okay, so you yeah. drive through Amarillo on your way from any point in the Midwest, maybe St. Louis or something, and you're going down into Texas, and through Amarillo, there are a number of famous steakhouses there. Oh, yeah. And the billboards line the expressway. If you eat the 72-ounce steak, it's free. It's free. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, okay. Now, I haven't been through there in a long time, and it's something I've always wanted to try. You want to try the 72-ounce? I've wanted to try it, but I'm afraid I would probably fill up with salad first. That's... <laughs> That's probably what would happen. Yeah. So yeah. That, so that's, that's kind of like Milo. This would be right up his alley. Oh, right. Exactly. He would have no problem putting no away problem. a seventy-two ouncer. Right. Yes. All right. Um. Uh, carrying on. In short, these athletes behaved like Heracles in every detail, and that and that they were in dead earnest in doing this is proved by the case of Milo of Croton, outstanding athlete and no less famous trencherman. Now that that was a word I had to look up. Are you mm -hmm. familiar with the term trencherman? I think so. It yeah. means a guy that eats a lot. Yes. A trencherman. I've never heard that before. It's a I don't. I, I love the you word. You like it? I do. Maybe it's because you <laughs> dig a trench through your food with your spoon, <laughs> like a man with a shovel. Right. That's probably not the etymology, but it's memorable, Just isn't it? Plowing. No, I'm never going right. to forget it, right? Right. So he was uh, no less famous trencherman who in 511 BC fought the men of Sybaris with a club clad in the lion's fell. This Milo also made himself famous by lifting huge stones. And from Greece, there really come three stones, one weighing nearly 500 kilograms. Yep. Which I had to do my Google of uh, course. Uh, conversion. Right. Uh, that's 1,102 pounds. Yes. And these stones, uh, they come with inscriptions announcing by whom they were lifted. I guess if you lift it, then you get your name put on it. I guess so. Which is really impressive. <laughs> and that's possible, is, I guess. I, I was going to ask you because right. I, mean, I don't know... Uh, like weightlifting records. Yes. That, I mean, that sounded absurd to me. Well, it is very, very high, but def deadlifting a thousand pounds has been done. It has. Yes. It's very uncommon. Yeah. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. I could say it's Herculean, but that would just be too on the nose. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, but, you know, it's different to lift something that's strapped on a barbell when you have lots of modern technologies and to lift a stone. Yeah. But maybe what counts as lifting it is just getting it off the ground a little bit. I guess so. I don't know. Right. Today, strongman competitions use uh, what's called an atlas stone. 
which is a sphere. You know, it's, it's shaped into a sphere and it's mm-hmm. a stone and you have to lift it and move it around. It does not weigh a thousand pounds, uh, but deadlifting a thousand pounds or 1100 pounds hasn't been done. It has been done. Okay. So this is not, this is, it's, it's not like, uh, um, the stories like that, that famous long jumper who jumped up, you know, 60 feet. Right. Say, right. Which is, you know, twice as long as the modern record. I've never heard that one. Oh, we should, we, that we should bring that up at some time. Okay. So, I mean, just in short, I love to bring up this story in my, in my, uh, my myth class when we talk right. about you know, Zeus in the Olympic games. And what's the, there's this fascinating detail is that, you know, with the Olympic games, so many records survive, you know, mm-hmm. at least, you know, lists of victors. And in some cases they have, uh, even distances recorded of how far they threw the discus and or the javelin, and what's really interesting is that if you you know you take their measurements and you translate them to right. feet and inches, um, the distance for the javelin and the discus, yeah, that's it's yeah that that size and that weight of a thing, you can imagine an athlete right. throwing that, and then it comes to the the long jump, uh, which the the Greeks apparently use these hand weights in jumping only for training. For, the what, hand weights were for training, were they not? We don't know that. Oh, we don't, okay. So some have speculated that it was you know, part of the actual jump. Hmm. And um, and there's a record that's recorded of somebody who jumped and went outside the pit and landed somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 feet oh my. In, a, in a jump, maybe with weights in his hands, which is impossible. So what is it today? It's something like a little bit over 30? It is uh, 29 feet, four and a half inches. Bob Beeman was the first guy, wasn't he? He was, had that long standing record and then Mike, right. Mike Powell broke it in 1991. Wow. So it's one of the longer standing uh, track and field records over 30 years now. But it's half. Half. Right. <laughs> of so, this supposed ancient record. Right. So the, the puzzle is that, you know, if the discus measurements make sense, Right. What happened when this guy Someone, jumped, right? you know, forgot to carry the one or the, <laughs> overcarried the one or something <laughs> slipped in the inscription or had right. too much wine when he wrote down the numbers. I don't know. Right, right, right. Something like that. Yeah. But I think there's the general impression that athletes today are better than athletes of old, just as we have the general impression that people today are smarter than people of yes, old. Yes, right. But then we find these records which show in some categories, in some places, the athletes of the past were at least equal and perhaps, you know, leaving aside the 60 foot long jump superior, yeah, superior. Right. No, I, I, um, I think that too, I, I even think in terms of, um, when, you know, this past April, when I was standing, um, you know, under the, under the, in the shadow of the Parthenon. Right. Um, and, uh, thinking, you know, have we, uh, do we build things like this anymore? No. C- could we build things like this anymore? I don't think yeah. we could. You don't think it could well, be Well, maybe, maybe with some, you know, kind of, you know, you know, laser precision. Right. You know, car. Well, they are re, I mean, they are refurbing it, right? They are remaking the pieces. True enough. But not with technology from the fifth century. No, exactly. With, with hammers and chisels. Right. And, right. And so I, I think that, and do we do those things? No. Maybe we can do them, but do we do them better? No. I don't think we do. No, I don't think so either. Right. So it's humbling. Yep. Humbling. Let me just finish the the, 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 the quote here. So um, so the, this too was a competition in physical exercises. Um, the form of letters uh, date all these stones for within the 6th century BC, which is to the time of Milo. So that's 599 to 501. Yes. So everyone's on the same page. But athletes lifting stones are also depicted on 5th century BC bases. And even in the 2nd century BC, there were some lithoboloi, yep. stone chuckers. Stone chuckers, like a shot put, <laughs> right, right? right? Like a shot put. Exactly. Among the athletes attending the Ephibic Games at Samos. Yeah. So I was watching the U.S. Uh, track and field national championships, which were going on in Eugene, Oregon this previous week. Oh, really? Yes. You didn't know about this? I didn't. I, oh, love, that st- I, I, I love that stuff. I'm sorry. Watch the it. replays on YouTube. They're, okay. they're phenomenal. Yeah. So some really fascinating races and fascinating individuals competing. Mm-hmm. And Ryan Krauser 
right? Whose name I'm sure has never been mentioned on this podcast, uh, you know, is the, the U S champion in shot put and he's one of a kind, apparently nobody's like him. Uh, so he'd fit right in here. He's yeah. like a modern day Milo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were any were any records set at the at the meet? Uh, do you, do you know? Did you well, see? one record was set in that a nineteen year old won the two hundred meter. Really? A competition. A man named uh, Arian Knighton, nineteen years old. Wow. And he's the fastest man in the world at that distance. Man, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, I'll definitely have to to uh, to check that out. You'll have to check those out. Do you have a favorite event? I like the running events. You do. I get real impatient with things that take time. So. <laughs> The triple jump, I can't understand that. I just can't get into the triple jump. That is an odd thing. It just seems so awkward, right? (laughs) Yeah. The the first leap of the three jumps, I think, that's it. But no, No, there's two more. There's hopping involved. Exactly. (laughs) So, and I like the middle distance. I think the strategy that goes into running, say, the, the 1500 meter... Or the 5,000, that's really impressive. Exactly. How do you conserve that energy? And then where do you just, just turn on all the gas? Right. right. How do they have anything left I know. after all? <laughs> I know. It's astounding. Yeah, I would love to attend one one day just to be on the ground to really see how fast they're going. Because I think yeah. when you see it you know, on the screen, you don't really get a sense of... Deceptive, because yeah. they're all running the same, roughly the same rate. Right, so. right, right. So then from the opening quote from Mr. Jan Bazant, mm-hmm. uh, we learn that Milo was uh, sui generis in terms of his athleticism. Uh, and in terms of his appetite. Yes. <laughs> and that these men were imitating Hercules. Yeah. Right? He, to them, he was a a living figure, a living legend, a historical individual that they wanted to emulate. Right, right, right. Yeah. And so uh, I, I think he's one, also one of these guys that, you know, was there an actual Milo? I think that probably most historians who, who, who worry about this stuff would probably say yes. Okay. But... Um, can you cut through the fog of exaggeration to get to the real man? That's a whole other question. Right. So I was trying to think of, of kind of a modern corollary. And the one that struck me was maybe somebody like Babe Ruth. Yes. Um, I read a biography. Muhammad Ali, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, that's another good one. Except all of his fights and everything is so carefully recorded by that time. Right. So, I mean, you don't have the same kind of problem. But I remember a, um, a bi- reading a biography of Babe Ruth and about the stories circulating about how many hot dogs he ate and how right. much beer he drank in one sitting. And, you know, he had this, these prodigious Milo like Milo like appetites. Right. And, you know, he lived kind of just before uh, or his career was before television. Right. And so it, it was before, before everything was filmed. Right. Exactly. I mean, like Ali was, you know, he was always right. being filmed. He was very well aware he's being filmed and was kind of aware of his own myth making. Um, but, you know, the, the stories about Babe Ruth, you know, his famous called shot, that you know, he kind of pointed to the the right field stands in in right. Wrigley Field in nineteen thirty four, and and he says next pitch is going out, and he hits it. Right? Um, was it true? You know, people who were there right. said yes, he did. Others say no, he didn't. And so I thought, yeah, Ruth is kind of like a mm. a modern day Milo. I see. Perhaps yeah. semi liminal, right? So, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Right. right. So where are we going from here then? Well, um, I thought we could talk maybe a little bit about um the centrality of athletics and sport. In Let's do that. Days. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you remember your first visit to Olympia? I do. It was, um, I remember when I went as a, went to Greece as a student, Right. we were handcuffed by uh, the first Iraq war and mm-hmm. we did not make it to Olympia. Hmm. I was very disappointed. So the first time I was there um, was with the first uh, student group I took over okay. there and it was magnificent. Yes. It, it's still one of my favorite places to go back to. So in the West Peloponnese mm-hmm. on kind of a large alluvial plain, mm-hmm. right? There's lots of tall grass. There's no, no mountains in that part of Greece. For the most part, there's some rolling hills. Yes. It's a big flat spot kind of, although um, 
riven with earthquakes. And I guess a lot of destruction has taken place on the site of Olympia because of those earthquakes. Yes, and um, in more recent times, the um, uh, forest fires right. yeah, really threatened it. Yes, yeah, so the first time that I was there was in 2011 with you, actually. You know, I think that's... Uh, was the first time I visited. Okay, yes. Yeah, so that wasn't my first time, but it was not, right. not far from that. Second or third. Yeah. So what is the impact that it makes on you when you first arrive there? You know, expectations versus reality. What would you say? Um, I think what I, I mean, what really struck me was kind of the... Um, the serenity of the site. And one of the things I really like about Olympia is there's the modern town of Olympia, this tiny kind of two street town. Right. And but the devoted entirely to tourism. Exactly. Um, and, but the archaeological site is is next door. Right. And so you don't have kind of you don't have you know, like some of these sites here. You have the you know the excavation that's you know part of the town square, mm-hmm. and the, the modern and the ancient are fused together. No, it's it's completely separate. And kind of walking down that path uh, as you enter the site and mm-hmm. just, you know, hearing the birds chirping and and hearing the babbling of the, of the rivers that, right. that meet there. It's just, it's, you, you can, you can, I felt at a moment, okay, I can see why the Greeks considered right. the site sacred. Yes. What about, what about, how about you? Well, I had that impression. And then the size of the complex was also uh, impressive. It's a very large complex. I yeah. didn't expect it to be like this. And you can see the, the ruins and the foundations of the different places The I think it's the Xenodokium, you know, the guest house where, it's huge. Yeah. Where, uh, if you were, you know, visiting, this is the the luxury quarters, and then there's the, um, I think it's the Philippeion, the 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 little um, the circular, yes, the monument. Tholos yes. monument that Philip II dedicated, and I can still remember walking through um, the the arched entryway yes. into the field of Olympia itself, yeah, and uh, learning for the first time that yes, there is some evidence that the Greeks knew how to construct with arches. Yes. but they just didn't want to. Right, so right. it's not um, as much of an innovation with the Romans as was previously believed. That's how I learned it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then looking out over the, you know, the size of the Olympic stadium itself and getting to run on the Olympic stadium with the other students and yes. then with my kids, you know, later on. And it's really impressive. It is. It makes a deep impact. Right. It is. It is a site that has been devastated by earthquakes. Mm-hmm. I mean, almost everything on the main sanctuary site has been leveled to the ground. Right. You remember at the, um, you know, the temple of Zeus there, which was, you know, most famous in antiquity for the great statue. Yes, by uh, Phidias. By Phidias. Um, they have set up... Phidias Scent? Is that is that the guy's name who... Phidias Scent? Well, I, I'm missing a joke here, aren't Not I? a good one. <laughs> the American rapper. Phidias Scent. Phidias Scent, yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, but the, you remember they have set up a, uh, a one column, right. kind of a rebuilt column, just to give you a sense of kind of how how tall it was. But all the drums there, just all the door, uh, they're Doric, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, just littering the place, just yes. incredible. And you know, kind of ca- kind of dominoed out where yes. they fell, you know, 1500 years ago. Right. And so highly pitted by the weather and the rain and so forth, and filled with uh, with moss and other kinds of vegetation, but still Im- incredibly impressive. Yeah, very impressive. As I always say to my students that, you know, you either kind of find a kind of a haunting, tragic beauty in that. Right. Or you say, oh, well, what a shame that that fell down. I wish I could see it standing. Right. And not that those two things had to be exclusive. Yeah, can't you feel both? You can feel both, but... Right. Um, when I see those kind of those scalloped out columns, there's there's just I think there's I find there's some something quite beautiful. I agree. Yeah. And then you get to go inside the museum and you get to see uh, both of the friezes, right? Yeah. Um, with the uh, the famous battle of the Lapis and Centaurs and that very dramatic uh, Apollo. Right. In that 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 wonderful room, which is built along the the same dimensions as the temple itself. Correct. It's really, really well. With done. all the Hercules. Um, you know, the 12 labors there from the Metopes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which brings us back to Milo. Yes, exactly. So Milo, um, 
he was I was yeah, um just looking at it here apparently a six time Olympic victor. So okay. he said that he won six um, laurel wreaths there, which um uh, I guess I don't know my history well enough to say. I mean, it sounds very impressive, right? Um, you know, imagine somebody winning. Um, six gold medals right. across a, a few. Carl Olympians. Lewis, yeah. Usain Bolt, um, Michael, Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps, right? That, that's in that in that kind of category. But and when I was reading about this, it, my sense is that was almost you know unheard of, right? Right. But he falls into that category of um, the strong man, the brawn type right. of hero, right? And um, and so you can often you know, look at a a Greek hero story. And the character will usually fall into either into kind of the bronze strongman type category, mm-hmm. Achilles, or the trickster category, right. Odysseus, and, and, and some that kind of straddle that fence. Mm-hmm. And I think if you looked across kind of mythologies around the world, you'd find um, a similar kind of thing. Okay. And so he reminds me a lot of of, of Enkidu okay. uh, from the Babylonian myths, or um, someone like um, Samson, right, right in the in the Hebrew tradition, in the Book of Judges, right. And it it's, it struck me that is it was although a, Samson has his moments of craftiness too sure as when he takes the fox's tails and ties them together and sets them on fire right 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 and the way that he you know successfully parries delilah's tricks yes. you know for several rounds until eventually he's overcome right you know exactly in, in in the same way that heracles too is he's not remembered for being the most clever guy but he tricks atlas yes right, with the apples he and, cleans the augean stables with a brief moment of hydraulic engineering yeah so he's not without his matis but i definitely agree that he's He's by and large the brute. Yes, not not the brains. Right, exactly. Right, and and if I I was thinking about if you I think if you compare a lot of strong men figures from across traditions, one of the things that they share is that um, they uh, they kind of come from nature. Okay, they belong in nature. So you know Heracles, what's his his main weapon? It's the club. You know, right. a, a branch snapped out of a tree. Yes, um, you know, no, uh, it's it is the stump of the tree itself. The stump. Okay. If I can be a little pedantic, which oh, is okay. what, what I do, right? <laughs> right. It's the olive tree itself. He rips it up by the roots. So it's even more impressive. Exactly. Because right? the olive tree, you know, is so tenacious. Exactly. You can't kill it. But right. But he can just rip it out with one, exactly. with one hand. Or if you think about Samson using the jawbone right. Right, as, as a weapon. So there's something with the strongman characters, they belong in nature, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's often an element of these stories is that they they want to be civilized mm. or they want to be accepted in that world. You know, Enkidu goes to to the town of Gilgamesh and ends okay. up teaming up with him. This is the town uh, where Gilgamesh lives, or is the name of the town Gilgamesh? You no, know, Gilgamesh is the king. Uh, the right. town is Uruk. Okay. In um, which you could argue, in terms of its written form, is the oldest story mm. in the Middle Eastern Western tradition. The listeners are thinking: Does Doctor Noe not know anything about Babylonian myth? Did you ever? Did you ever include Gilgamesh in your like reading? I taught form? it briefly okay. in one section of um, I don't know. History of Western Civ or okay. something, but frankly, I remember little of it. Gotcha, I gotcha. As you can tell. Right. But you've taught it multiple times. I have. I, I will often at least... In translation. In translation, of course, right. Um, or if you think about, you know, Samson, you know, him, you know, getting together with Delilah and having mm-hmm. his hair cut, uh, you know, is, I think, a symbol of him being civilized, but it, it, it destroys him. Right, it's the and, breaking of the vow. Right. And, um, and so, you know, Heracles, too, he... He wants to be, you know, he tries to be, learn how to play the liar. He gets frustrated. He kills his liar. Teacher. Linus is the guy he kills. Right. Yep. He gets married twice and both of those, those marriages end in disaster. The first for his, his family and the second leads to his own death. Right. And so I saw that too kind of, um, kind of replicated in the life of Milo is that he, he dies young. We'll talk about his famous death story, mm. um, but he never kind of fully integrates into that world outside of being a strong man. So to psychologize it, is this kind of a, an inevitable con- consequence of megalomania? 
Um, in order to be extremely good at one thing, right, you have to shut out all other normal kinds of activities. Yeah. I remember when it was, uh, I don't know, in the 2000s and it was my first academic job. And I think it was right about the time that uh, Michael Jordan, mm -hmm. um, of course, he could sue us for everything we're worth, which isn't much. <laughs> uh, but when he left the NBA and then came back or something. Yeah, he went to play I, baseball. Yeah, remember and I that? asked, well, he, that was a little bit earlier, but then he came back and played for the Wizards. and bought, Oh, yeah, yeah. Bought, bought the Bobcats, I don't know. but yeah. um, And I said, so what's going on there? You know, he's got so much money. Why doesn't he just do something else? And, mm -hmm. and somebody who knew this world quite a bit better than I did, had interacted with some celebrity athletes, told me that's all they know how to do. It, it's, uh -huh. not that, it's not that he needs the money or the attention. It's just that's the only thing that he really... It's the only world he knows. It, it's so important to him. That's... He, it's a compulsion kind of hmm, that's really well, I don't know if that's true yeah but it seems like a way to understand someone like Milo um, you're really good at athletics and then you're not normal in other categories because you don't have that capacity right and that comes at um, there's a there's a trade-off there's a cost with that right, right? Um, I when I teach my film course when we, we covered the American Western uh, there's this phrase that comes up a lot called the paradox of the gunslinger mm. and so you often will have these characters in the American Westerns who um, are they're really good at shooting and killing people okay right and so then they come up against kind of the wildness of the west you know the 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 town that needs to be tamed right they bring in the gunslinger because he acts kind of above the law right and because he he does what he does he needs to do to um you know get rid of the enemy get rid of the the, the robbers the thieves tame the town we all need someone like that right and but then what happens usually at the end of the movie is that you know the the day has been saved but the gunslinger doesn't belong there anymore. He's kind of right. re he's re restored law and order, but he's someone who doesn't play by the rules of he law. He can't and order. function within it, right? So it's it's a, almost every character that John Wayne ever played. Hmm. He saves the day, but at the end, he's got to leave. Yeah, the riding off into the sunset is not so much um, what a kind of a, a tip of the hat to his greatness. Right, it's like a necessity. Yes. He's got to leave. You can't stay here. Right, right. You don't fit the, in the world you've created. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, even that, like riding off to the sunset, I think when most people hear that, it sounds romantic. It sounds like a parade, kind of. But you know, it's really quite tragic. Right. Yeah. And so I thought that that struck me too. Like Michael Jordan, Milo here, uh, they're great at what they do and they're celebrated for what they do in that arena. Mm -hmm. But because of kind of their greatness, it alienates themselves. They, it alienates them from so much of, of kind of regular civilized society. Right. So that's, I mean, there's a, there is a, a mythic moral, I think, embedded in these kinds hmm. of stories that you see not just in the Greeks, but around the world. Right. So you could bring up another individual here um, just to get further afield, and that is the comedian Jim Carrey. Uh, okay. Who apparently said that he wished everyone could become rich and famous so they could see how worthless it is. He, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. It's quite insightful. Yeah. I've, I'm, I've heard... That he, uh, was this recent? Because I've heard it. Jim, it was in the last few years. Yeah, Jim Carrey is kind of, um, he's got no filter anymore. Well, you, you grow a beard, you you know, you do some painting, which I think is his hobby. Okay. And suddenly you're a philosopher. <laughs> right, so. of course. Right. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, um, before we move to the next section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to just provide the listener here with a little bit of a mnemonic, which has helped me immensely. And that is there are four major games, oh, right? Yeah, yes. There are four major uh, games, and they are the Pythian the Olympic, the Nemean, and the Isthmian, which if you put them out in that way, right, it's pony. It pony. spells pony, P-O-N-I. Yes. So that for me has been 
you know, a mnemonic for remembering the four major games because not ponies, but horses raced at these. And uh, I believe I have visited each one of these sites. I was just going to ask you. Yes. yes um, Cause I've, I've only been to Olympia and Delphi where the Pythian games were. Mm-hmm. I've not been to the other two. The Isthmian games were at Corinth. Uh, but where's the stadium? I don't know. Okay. It's, it's, uh, it's not on the Acro Corinth. It's down somewhere in the vicinity of the city. Uh, we're probably showing our ignorance here. How many times have I been? I think I've been to Corinth six times. Uh, I've never been on the site. Perhaps it's not excavated. Maybe, maybe not. I'm, I got I have to admit, every time I've been to Corinth, I've never, I've never, I'm never thinking about the Ismian Games. No, but right. that's the that's the area. Okay. The Nemean Games are on the Peloponnese, and that's where he supposedly slew the lion. Yes. And I did have a chance to visit Nemea. Um, it was, I think, in twenty. It would have been 2015. Uh, so when I was there with former colleague Young Kim, who, yeah. no, who no doubt listens to every one of these episodes. Of course. Right. I'm just assuming. And um, a young girl who was on the trip with us, her grandfather had passed away and she wanted to fly home for his funeral. Oh, wow. And so I um, was tasked with taking her from where we were in Nafplio, drove her back to the airport in Athens. Okay. It all worked out very nicely, you know, for her, thankfully. And for me, it was fine. Yeah. And then when I came back, I took the extra time to stop off in uh, Nemea and tour that site. Wow. Which is very small compared to Olympia, but impressive. And uh, it has its own little covered um, archway, sort of, for entering the stadium. Okay. And uh, there's a nice temple there um, for, um, I think it's a Temple of Hercules. There at Nemea. Interesting. What, did you have the place to yourself? Oh yes. Yeah. I mean, in January there were maybe two other people on yeah. the whole site. That's that's one of the wonderful things about going to those places. Actually, now that I checked, Jeff. Yes. I'm not correct. It's not a temple of Hercules at Nemea. It's a temple of Zeus. Okay. Hercules' father. Right. Right. I, I guess in in those cases where you have to guess, I mean, I would it, go with Zeus. Go with Zeus. <laughs> right. Right. So it's it's a temple of Zeus. Yes. Um, but I mean, I would have to imagine there's got to be. Or, or were shrines to, to Heracles sure, in the area because sure. of his association with the spot. Right. right. So the bottom line is Pony. Pony. This is how you can remember Pony, Pythian, Olympic, Nemean, and Isthmian. Right. So the Pythian games were at Delphi, mm-hmm. right? And we've we've seen those. We've been there. Climb up the hill on the sacred site on Mount Parnassus all the way to the top, uh, later developed by the Romans, excavated further and expanded. Uh, but these are the four biggies. Which do you prefer? Do you prefer the kind of the, the natural bowl of the Olympic Stadium or that that more kind of, uh, you know, Romanized you know, with the stone seating uh, stadium at, at uh, Delphi? Well, I prefer the the natural bowl, but I uh, at Olympia where there were no stands. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one of the other misimpressions that I had when coming to Olympia is that there were bleachers. But no, there's no bleachers. Right. The. Uh, spectators just sat on the grass on the embankment. Right. Yep. Right. Um, but I think that this, the the shrine of Apollo at Delphi is much more impressive. It's much more dramatic. Correct. Yeah. Because yeah. of its elevation. Right. And then when you climb all the way up to the top of the hill, you know, if, if you were, if you didn't know it was up there, it, it's 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 almost shocking that there's this full-size stadium right. waiting for you. Right. Um, not that far from the top of the mountain. Right. Because yeah. I thought that was the athletic event, was just climbing up there. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Mm-hmm. Right. All right, let's talk. Let's talk some Milo. Okay. All right. So, um, according to tradition, Milo was born in the Greek colony of Croton in uh, southern Italy. Uh, like we said, he was a six-time Olympic victor. Um, he, he won once for wrestling in in 540 BC at the 60th Olympiad. Is this when he was still a a, a boy, a young man? I, could, I don't know if we have like um, set dates for Milo. Okay. But I, um, it's a, yeah for boys wrestling, so it must maybe kind of a. Uh, a lower, another right. category perhaps. And then he won five times in wrestling 
at the 62nd through the 66th Olympiads. Wow. So that's, I mean, again, to compare that to modern day, that's not unheard of. If you think of, like no. we mentioned Michael Phelps. I mean, he right. competed at, at a number of Olympiads. Right. But the, uh, the... The Tour de France winner, Lance Armstrong, won so many times. Now, I mean, the truth about him we know. Right. But still... Yeah, he may not have been the only one doing that kind of thing, and and uh, it was still quite a competition. Or you you add up the number of uh, Grand Slams uh, for tennis. Yes, right. You got the big four: Djokovic and um, uh, Roger Federer, mm-hmm. and who's the other guy? I'm not a big Rafael Nadal. Nadal. You don't follow tennis? I I, I don't. I mean, I okay. know who all three of those guys are, but I I couldn't have I couldn't have. For you, it's just three. like ping pong on a large scale, <laughs> something like that. Okay, right. Um, but that's the. I mean, then as now, the exception, not the rule. Right. Um, the the career of a of a typical Olympic athlete is very short. Mm. Right. There's always somebody stronger and faster coming up behind you, and you know, in um, and certainly in kind of the strength and, and speed um, uh, events, your 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 life on top is going to be it's oh, probably going to be very short. Your days are numbered. Right. Yeah. So uh, the beyond that, it's uh, the tradition says that he Milo kept on competing. Um, well beyond what was considered a, a normal uh, athletic career. So people were asking him to retire. Come on already. You know, just yeah. just hang, hang up. up your cleats. Yeah, exactly. But he kept going. Right. So, I mean, how many athletes can you... We, we were talking about, you know, this is the only right. world they know. When people kind of complain about, you know, why does you know, Brett Favre keep retiring and coming back? You know, right. Was, well, what else do what, they know? What do you want him to do? What, what is he going to do, <laughs> right? Yeah, you think he should have finished law school by now? <laughs> right. Exactly. So, but I think that's, I, I mean, I haven't really thought about it in that way, but if that's, I mean, if that's the world, you know, if you're a professional athlete, chances are you've been groomed for this since you were a, a little kid. Right. Right. Um, and so that's the only world you know. And so what right. are you supposed to do when your, your life is quote unquote over at age 34? Right. What, right. So I think this is why when um, the storytelling that goes into watching sports, professional sports, mm-hmm. if you've ever watched, we were talking about track and field or any of these kinds of sports, there's a lot of storytelling that goes into the broadcasters. Oh, yeah. right? It's not just they competed in the event and here are the results. They have to build a lot of drama around, of course. It. you know, family member died, uh, they had a baby, <laughs> there's a broken relationship, whatever. Exactly. Uh, and that's really understandable. But one of the themes that always emerges is, I think, how normal they are off the field. At least mm. that's what they want us to believe. Yes. Have you noticed that? Yes, that's I have. one of the common story arcs. Yes, absolutely. And they even, um, as I was watching the track and field championships, they talk about it in a way that's supposed to be surprising. Not only are they great on the field, but look at how they are off the field of play. Yes. And I think it's it's trying to normalize something that's so unusual. Exactly. No, I think that's very true. Uh, I noticed a lot of that. I watched recently a documentary on Nolan Ryan. The, oh, yeah, the, the great, pitcher. The great pitcher. And I, I thought of Nolan Ryan in reading about Milo, too, because he's one of these rare guys that pitched well into his 40s. Mm. And I think he even threw his last no-hitter when he was 42. Now, was he the Iron Horse? No, that's Lou Gehrig. So who's Cal Ripken? Cal Ripken was, he broke the record of the Iron Horse. Okay. And so he was, the, I think they call um, Ripken the Iron Man. The Iron Man. Yes. It's a lot of nicknames. Right. So Lou Gehrig was, was um, one of the records he set was the you know, consecutive games played. Never never missed a game. And that's, okay. the, that's, the, that's the big record that Ripken broke. Okay. Um, but Nolan Ryan, Nolan Ryan, like Ripken too, who played uh, you know very a very long time and for the most part fairly well. And so Ryan throwing a no hitter you know in his forties, nobody does that. Anymore. That's incredible. And if you look at except Tom Brady, oh, Tom, I think he's, well, he's throwing a no hitter. <laughs> right. Well, Brady's again one of these guys that 
Yeah, I'm retiring. Oh, I'm not retiring. He comes right. back. I, how is Brady 40 now? I mean, oh, yeah, he's over 40. He's over 40. And to be an NFL quarterback, it's a, that sport, right? You know, the punishment on your body is ridiculous. It is. But if you look at like in Nolan Ryan's record, um, like, he holds the record for most strikeouts. It's something like 5,700. Hmm. And the guy that's in second place has a little over 4,000. It's not, it's, it's. So they'll never get close. Not even close. And could so, take another 100 years for someone to come close. Exactly. So he's one of these guys. But in that documentary, who is he? Oh, he's just a good old boy. Right. He's a Texas boy. He just wants to raise his chickens. Right. He's and, in, he's just like the rest of us. Right. And so when they, when they interview, so him why about, do you think it's done like that? Why do you think that's the story arc? Well, I think I think I think we have these because we have to be able to relate. Yes. Well, I think this. I think we have this desire. Um, humans have the desire that we want our heroes to be special, but we also want them to be like us too. Mm-hmm. Right. And so. Um, have you ever heard that phrase, never meet your heroes? Oh, yes. Right. <laughs> Have you ever met one of your heroes and been like either thrilled yeah. or disappointed? Yeah. <laughs> when I went to Greece with Ken Tamplin uh, <laughs> four years ago. <laughs> well, my, it, my musical hero. Well, so, but, but that's different because he's a friend of yours. Yeah, he is. Right. So that's different than just like meeting so like, that's on the street. M- multiple dynamics, right, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. So you're one of your heroes. Who's that guy for Coldplay or Dead Day or Green Hour? What's... Um, none of those guys are my heroes. I don't know what you're talking about. Some musician. Like Chris ben, Martin. Ben Folds? I don't know. Okay, Ben Folds is one of my heroes. Isn't Chris Martin a musician? He is, but he's not a hero of mine. Okay. All right. Um, but I met... Tough crowd. I met my... I, I would, if I had to pick one of my musical heroes, Ben Folds. A, okay. A, a pop piano musician who, uh, is wonderful. And you met him? Well, I met him at a, like a signing. Right. That doesn't really count. He didn't recognize you? Well, he didn't recognize me, but... And you don't... There's no, there's no interaction, right? Right. And so, but I think that a lot of people would love to meet their heroes, but would like to, you know, oh, I had a conversation with, you know, right. you know, fill in the blank. And it was, oh, he was just a normal, normal dude and, right. and, and stuff like that. So Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan. He's got to be a normal dude. Right. In order for us to relate to his athletic accomplishments. I, I think that just to, to say that, you know, he's like, I think there's also kind of, and there's a kind of an American myth that like any of us can do this. I right? see. You know, it's kind of an every man myth that's embedded but you know in this which is clearly not true no, of course it's not none true. of us could be michael phelps <laughs> no right none of us could be nolan ryan right but it's funny when they interview him in this documentary he's now in his he's now in his like mid upper 70s and he's he's so blasé about everything that he did mm. oh you know i'm just you know what i really want to do, I play with my grandkids and i want to raise my hogs and right it's just he's just a texan boy yeah and well, um, that's endearing it's very endearing right? but if he hadn't uh, done unbelievable things in the uh, game of baseball Nobody would care. Of course. He'd just be another dirt farmer. Right. Right. <laughs> hmm. Well, um, that's interesting. So um, I collected some things that you know, some ancient authors okay. of, of, kind of the anecdotes that they collected and, and passed down about Milo. Um, apparently, a, a lot of uh, people were fascinated by not just his athletic feats, but how much he could eat and drink. Right. So Athenaeus. Like that young Japanese guy who's probably not young anymore. Which guy? You know, the guy who eats 65 hot dogs oh, every 4th of July. Oh, right, right. <laughs> I just I heard something about kind of a recent uh, contest. I think that guy's retired now or Probably. Dead. No, he's not dead. <laughs> We're talking about Takeru Kobayashi. That's the guy. Yeah. Born in 1978, ate 50 hot dogs in 12 minutes. Wow. I can't okay. eat one hot dog in 30 minutes. I don't like them. <laughs> you don't really? No, but right? 50 in 12 minutes. That's crazy. So like yeah. Milo. Right, Milo. Right. So Anthony says that he um, he could eat uh, 20 minai of meat. Mm-hmm. Um, 
It's like three hundred dollars worth of meat, right? Or like twenty pounds of meat, right? Roughly, an uh, equal quantity of bread. Yeah, so he did fill up on bread, <laughs> on bread, right? And then he washed it all down with three coeys of wine. Yeah, that's like three liters. It's, oh my goodness, right? So he he could put it away. Well, lifting a thousand pound stone is yeah. going to create a real need for uh, some caloric intake. So you need your protein, right? But you also need the quick carbs. You need the carbs, <laughs> right, to rebuild, <laughs> right? Exactly. And you need the wine for to dull the pain. I don't know. So you can. <laughs> sleep it off i guess so right um pliny also uh, talks about milo you mean pliny pliny right? is that dennis miller dennis miller is this Pl- pliny the elder pliny, or pliny the younger pliny the younger oh, this is pliny the elder okay he said milo is said to have worn uh the gizzard stones of roosters about him in order to render himself invincible in his athletic contests hmm. where, where does the invincibility come from I, it's uh, it, that struck me that's he's uh he's superstitious yeah like so many athletes like especially baseball players yes right? they have to put their shoes on the same way they have to hold the bat the same way right uh, uh you know what a gizzard stone is right is it something is it something in the neck or the throat well or? birds do not have teeth so they can't grind their feet oh, okay. they have this little pouch in their throat uh, called a gizzard and they ingest tiny little pebbles and then when the food goes down in there the pebbles in there um grind the food up before it passes into the rest of their body ah there you go okay, so these, that's the gizzard stone. that's a gizzard stone okay so yep. apparently they were uh thought to have magical maybe apotropaic properties i think right? so. so but it's superstitious like um do you remember um the Detroit Tigers manager, Sparky Anderson. I do. And so every time he would go out to the mound to consult with a pitcher. He ate like, uh, he was always chewing on four or five bushels of tobacco Absolutely. at the same time. Exactly. It's spinning all over the place. <laughs> um, but I think you, if you went to YouTube, you could find a super cut of Sparky going to the mound. And every time he goes and before he reaches the chalk uh, third baseline, yeah. he does a little kind of stumble step over it. He'll never, he'll kind of come up to it, but then he'll kind of hop over the line and, and never step on it. And it was one of his kind of like, you know, step up, you step on the line, your, your pitchers, yeah. you know, not doing fine, not doing fine. Exactly. So this is why, so because he observed that so carefully, the Tigers won like five world series in a row, right? Well, they won one world series with Sparky, but maybe, <laughs> but, but probably because he never stepped on the line. Oh, I'm sure that right. was the cause. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, that's what I saw in this. Milo's okay. superstitious. Yeah. Pausanias. Um, what is Pausanias? The Greek he, historian. Uh, this, this is perhaps my favorite story about Milo says he could tie a string or a ribbon around his forehead. And he could snap it off simply by holding his breath and expanding the blood vessels in his in his temples. That's incredible. <laughs> Can you do anything like that? No, nothing like that. That's incredible. But can't you imagine this guy with his, you know, this giant noggin just going red and right. just like popping off his head? <laughs> it's, it's incredible. <laughs> um, uh, Pausanias, the great travel writer. Right. Um, actually, you, you read the I just, Pausanias sorry, one. Did, uh, Cicero. Um, he says that on another occasion, Milo was said to have lifted a fully grown uh, four-year bull slung it across his shoulders, carried it around the stadium in Olympia, uh, which astonished the crowd. Um, and then he proceeded to kill it, cut it up, and eat it uh, in the span of a single day. The entire bull. Right. So that's, I think that's... We he were, grilled it first, right? I hope he grilled yes. it. He didn't eat it raw. No. But no. Uh, out there in the stadium, you know, with the apron on. That's incredible. Grilling. <laughs> so this is from Cicero's speech, Pro Melona, right? Where he is defending Milo. Um, against the charge of murder. There you go. Of yeah. Clodius, right, right? Right, right, And the whole defense, I mean, not the whole defense, but the really juicy part, so to speak, is when he says, um, my client, Milo, the Roman politician accused of murder, has the same name as the ancient athlete Milo. Here's a great story about the ancient athlete Milo. Therefore, my client is innocent. Wow, is that really the, the connection? Basically, he that's it. <laughs> And of course, Cicero knows it's all baloney right. uh, or beef jerky, but it's funny. Right. He knows how to work a crowd. He does. Yeah. Yeah. And this story about the bull, you know, is partly the old myth that 
if you pick something up when it's small, as it grows, you will continue to be able to pick it up. It's the sorites problem, if I can explain that for a minute. Please. When I was young and uh, growing up on the farm, um, we raised some calves, you know, from, well, from the time they're deacons, just weaned off their mothers until they were steers and then full-grown cattle. And my uncle said to me, you know, if you go and you pick that up, pick that one up now, he only weighs like 80 pounds, you can probably do it. You pick him up every day, when he's full-grown, you'll be able to pick him up. <laughs> and, and I thought, there's something wrong about that. <laughs> But I, I don't know exactly how to refute it. And the interesting thing was, I don't think my uncle had any knowledge of classical myth or these kinds of stories, the story of Milo. Yeah. But somehow it had crept into consciousness of people so much that he was familiar with that story. It kind of becomes like a folk wisdom. Correct. Yes. Because the idea is, well, you can always lift one more pound. Right. Right. It's only one more pound. Yeah, come on. And sometimes they don't even gain a pound per day. Can't you lift one more pound? <laughs> so I don't know why it doesn't work, but it doesn't. It's like uh, the Zeno paradox with the, um, you know, the arrow. Zeno of Alea, the arrow gets shot. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so forth. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. We got another Cicero quote here. Yeah. This is from his. This uh, is from his De Senectuta, yes. right? On old age. Mm -hmm. But speaking of old age. Yes. It's time for the ads. Let's do it. This episode of Odd Nauseam is brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Uh, Dave, I, I think I mentioned in the last episode, I, I received my my metal uh, carafe. Yes, I remember that. And I'm loving this. It, it's it's a total game changer right. for me. Right. So my wife is, is she's off uh, out west on a, on a class trip for her school. She's so, bringing uh, law and order to some wild west little town. Is exactly. she the gunslinger? She is living the paradox of the gunslinger okay. out there. While I, back home, get the whole pot of coffee to myself. Nice job. Right. So th just today... Um, I got that going around 7.30 this morning, okay. and I was um, sipping on brew uh, well until after lunch. And it was still warm. It was still hot. That's incredible. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I love that thing as, a, as my latest addition to my Ratio 8. So just this past weekend, actually, it was the 4th of July weekend to Jeff. Yeah. I'm reading through the Wall Street Journal's weekend edition in the off-duty section, and guess what I come across? What? A review of the Ratio 8. Oh, I, I'm assuming it was glowing. It was glowing. All right. Yes, it said, uh, <laughs> words to this effect, you know, this is a life-changing coffee machine. Uh, it's automatic pour-over. It didn't get into the borosilicate glass and the Fibonacci head and all the stuff that we do. Yes. But it was uh, very prominently featured there as a fantastic machine. So Excellent. I had a little sense of satisfaction. That's my machine. Yes. Right. We're, we're, the, uh, we're the podcast that's yes. promoting this. And there it is in the big newspaper. That's excellent. That's really cool to hear. Yeah. So I love my Ratio 8. I know you love your Ratio 8. I had the, the Ratio 6 for a while. It's right. It's younger brother, which is also a fantastic machine. And what's that doing now? Um, Just that, cooling its heels? It's on the shelf Do you right loan now. it out to a friend or I, something? I need to figure out what to you do with do. it. You do. Share, I, share some like of the love. I'm almost like I'm loath to give it up for some yeah. reason. Right. So, but listener, if you want one of these excellent machines, um, what, uh, what you should do is go to RatioCoffee.com. Uh, pick the one you want. Uh, drop it in your little satchel there. And if you type in this code, A-N-C-O... 6B. B as in brew. Brew. That will get you, what's that get them again? 15% off. Your entire order. Right. Now you might be saying, come on, Jeff, Dave, am I going to spend that much money on a coffee machine? Yeah. Well, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it's cheap, but why would you want something that's part of your daily routine to be cheap? Right. Exactly. You want something that's reliable, that's going to be a, I think it's pronounced heirloom. 
that you can give on to you know the next generation of coffee drinkers. That's exactly right. So I mean, I can't tell you how many years we I went through the the, the cheap plastic squirty types right. of machines, and those also kind of you know, gathered on a on a shelf. What am I going to repair these? Come right, on, right. Um, but these ratios are going to last me for a long, long time. Absolutely. So it is. It's it's worth the expense. Check it out. Check it out. This episode of Ad Nauseum is also brought to you by the Hackett Publishing Company. Hackett with offices in two of the great states of this great country, that is the state of uh, Indiana and the state of Massachusetts, have been bringing fine uh, editions, translations of the classics, plus many scholarly editions to the masses for it's now 50 Three years. Almost 52 years. Almost 53 years. Yep. Jeff, can you just tell us briefly Mm -hmm. a couple of the things you like about Hackett? Um, You know, it's over the the almost three years we've been doing this this, uh, podcast is I've really grown more and more to kind of love their editions. Um, so, uh, listeners, those of you who have tuned into the Aeneid episodes, um, I every time we did one, I was blown away by um, the Lombardo translation. The quality of that translation. Right. Very um, high. Uh, the uh, the translations that we've used for our Metamorphoses uh, episodes, um, also by Lombardo and, and Ambrose. It's um, I love this company that they will um, uh, have such high quality stuff that's affordable, and I also love that they will have multiple translations of the same work by different authors. Yeah, multiple titles of the same work. Yes, um, I, you just don't you just don't see that. No, and they've been so good to us, and they've been so kind of so laid back. They've supported this this podcast right. from almost the very very beginning. Yep. Um, yeah, I can't say enough. Yeah, there's a lot of complaining. I hear a lot of complaining from certain quarters about the cancellation of certain parts of the Western tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's legitimate or not, the folks at Hackett, that's not what they're doing. They are supporting and promoting the greats of classical literature. They're there for everyone to enjoy, but it's not just that. They also have Islamic studies and uh, uh, Far East studies, Asian studies. They have uh, South American studies. It's a real smorgasbord yes. um, of things available. Yeah, so do yourself a favor and go to HackettPublishing.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-T-T Publishing.com. And just check out their huge catalog. It's um, it's extraordinary. And find uh, the text that you want. Any text. doesn't have to be a classical title. Anything that you want there. Uh, drop it into the grocery basket. And if you type in the coupon code AN2023-2023. Yes, the current year. Um, Dave, that will get them. 20% off their order, their entire order. 20% off and... And free shipping. Check it out. All right, Dave, as we get back into it, uh, why don't you read a little Latin for us from Cicero's De Senectuta? I would love to do that. So this is from uh, section nine or paragraph 27, and it goes like this. Quae enim vox potest esse contemptior quam milonis crotoniatae, qui cum iam senex esset atletasque se exercentes in curriculo videret, aspexisset lacerto suos digitur in lacrimansque dixisse, at hi quidem mortui iam sunt? Non vero tam isti quam tu ipsa nugator, neque enem exte umquam es nobilitatus, sed ex laterdribus et lacertis tuis. Nicely done, as Thank always. Thank you. Now, this is interesting. He kind of does a uh, 180 from his opinion of Milo than he used in the Pro Milone. Right. <laughs> so before he used it as kind of a great example, he said, that Milo's great, and so this Milo is great. Right. And here he used him as kind of a, a, a cautionary tale. Well, because Cicero is a flexible orator. That's, that's true. You're going to read us the translation? Yes. Um, he says, what cry can be more contemptible than that of Milo of Croton? When he had grown old, he saw some athletes training on the track, looked at his own arms, wept, and said, and these indeed are now dead. Not so, you idiot. It is you who are dead, for your nobility came not from yourself, but from your trunk. 
and your arms. Mm. He invested. He put all his eggs in the bicep basket. Nice. Right? <laughs> There's a phrase. I think that's going to be the title of my next book. Oh, nice. Okay. Eggs in the bicep basket. <laughs> right. Can you just see what the cover would look like? Yeah, exactly. I, I can. It's a metaphor for something. Eggs in the bicep, bicep basket. basket. Yeah. Catchy. So in his, he's saying. Um, but he should have done something else. He should have done something he else. He should have uh, gone to hack it. Bought some, well, I guess the ads are over, <laughs> right, but yeah. he should have expanded his mind, not just his uh, upper arms. Exactly. Right. So yes, uh, sound mind and a sound body. Yes. And all that Milo apparently cared about was the sound body. Yeah. That's but, the juvenile quote, mens, uh, mens sana in corpore sano. Right. And so Milo only uh, paid attention to one half of that. That's equation. right. And so, yeah. So he becomes a figure of critic, a figure for criticism. Right. What makes for the good life. It's uh, both. Yeah, exactly. And I wonder if this connects to... You know, um, so many of the hero stories in Greek myth, they end rather sadly. And uh, it always, I, the, my, the most pathetic one in my mind is how Jason dies. I was just thinking of Jason crushed beneath his own Argo. Right. And so he's, he's uh, the rotting hull of his ship falls on his head after Medea has killed their two children. Yes. He's, he's left with, he's lost his, his bride-to-be. But he's, he's not a deserving hero. He's a total dud. He is a dud. I don't want him to get crushed by a ship. <laughs> Right. It's like changing the oil and the car falls on you. It's terrible. Yeah. But um, he's not a very deserving hero. No, he's not a deserving hero. But it, it reminds me of, of that. You know, he's uh, he's killed by the thing that he's most famous for. Right. And so by which he was obsessed. By, yeah, exactly. The, the only thing that kind of um, you know, raises him uh, um, maybe slightly above the level of, of, of dud right. was his time as, as the captain of the Argo. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that. He's kind of, again trapped in the past. Milo looks at his arms. He says, "This is what I, this was my whole identity, and now I've, go, I've gone flabby." Right. Right. There's the the new the new crew is is surpassing me now. Mm. Right. What about Galen? What about the famous physician Galen? Yes. What does he tell us about Milo? Galen says, "What surpassing witlessness not to realize even this much that a short while before, when the bull was alive and the animal's mind held up to its held up its own body, which with much less exertion than Milo put forth, furthermore that the bull could even run as it held itself upright." Yet the bull's mind was not worth anything, just about like Milo's. Ooh. So just kind of comparison that, you know, that when Milo's carrying that bull around, he and the bull really aren't all that different. Indistinguishable in sense. Yes. That's rough. That is really rough. Was yeah. Galen having a bad day? I, I mean, don't know. It's a little bit of elitism, I guess. <laughs> right, right. Maybe he was jealous. Right. So he becomes a, a kind of this this cautionary tale of, um, you know, if it, it's great to be uh, uh, physically strong, but you better develop the mind as well. Otherwise, it's going to be completely thrown out of balance. Right. right. Can I read this one from Strabo? Yes. Okay. So Strabo was a historian and a geographer, among other things. One widely known story of his physical prowess told how he supported the crumbling pillar of a room in which followers of the famous philosopher Pythagoras were meeting. On this occasion, the intellectuals were very appreciative of Milo's strength, for he single-handedly, I guess double-handedly is a better way to put it, held up the ceiling while his friends managed to get out, then he somehow managed to escape himself. Yeah. Like a bad 70s action movie. <laughs> totally. Like, I'm picturing Lou Ferrigno. Right. right? <laughs> Holds it up and then dives for the exit as the building collapses. Crashes, right. So apparently one of the traditions about Milo is that he was a Pythagorean himself. Hmm. Which I mean, maybe... That, that doesn't jive. That doesn't, you don't, you're not buying well, it? No, because they were vegetarians. Oh, we were told he ate, uh, what, I don't know how many minai of beef? Right, and a whole cow, a whole bull in one day. Right, killed right. it and then ate it. Yeah, that's not a very good Pythagorean. No, it's very that's inconsistent. Not. We have an episode about that, right? Um, 
no meat for us, please. We're Pythagoreans. Oh, that's right. That was right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You're right. So that doesn't that doesn't square. Doesn't jive. No. Maybe he came to Pythagoreanism late. Maybe when he was no longer a competitive athlete. Exactly. Maybe he was impressed by these guys that he saved by holding up. Could his be seat, right. Other tales we want to know. Right. So there's other kind of famous uh, anecdotes. He would um, he would uh, challenge people. He'd hold his arm out with his fingers outstretched and and said, "See if you can even bend my little finger." And, and I don't like the way that sounds. <laughs> You don't like that? No, that's sometimes used in other ways, but... Oh, I got... got the, the pull my finger? Oh, that's right. right. That right? Or he uh, would stand on a greased iron disc uh-huh. and challenge people to push him off of it. And he, and he would stay on it somehow. That's incredible. <laughs> that's bizarre. Or he would hold a, hold a pomegranate in a hand uh, and say, hey... In one hand, in one hand right? And, say, and see if you can take it from me. Right. Um, and nobody ever, ever, ever could uh, take it out of his hand, so... I've heard of that one before. That's impressive. Yeah. And apparently the pomegranate would not be damaged, right? right? He had such forearm strength. He could just hold it there delicately. Delicately, but still nobody could pluck it from his hand. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, yeah, other stories, uh, I think we alluded to earlier that um, it, I, later in his life, um, he took up arms against um, the, 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 the Siberians. Apparently were kind of a tribal rival to his mm-hmm. hometown. And he went out there dressed like Heracles and um, with a lion skin on with a club. And he helped his uh, his hometown army beat back an army uh, three times the size. Wasn't that uh, a little bit of just showing off, or what was the purpose of the the Hercules costume? Is that cosplay? I, I guess so. It, it reminds me a bit of of Alexander, right? Where he too kind of saw himself as Heracles, dressed reborn, in a lion skin, dressed in a lion skin. You know, depicted himself as as Heracles. So maybe it went beyond cosplay. That maybe Milo, you know, he kind of believed his own press. Could that, be that he was Heracles reborn. So this is recorded for us by uh, Diodorus Siculus, mm-hmm. and right. then a, a number of other sources uh, attest to other victories that he had. That um, he won seven times at in the Pythian Games, ten times in the Ismian Games, nine times at the Nemean Games. Um, Strabo and elsewhere in his geography calls him the most illustrious athlete of all time. Um, Pliny the Elder, Pliny, uh, says he was invincible in all his athletic contests. Uh, Julius Salinas says that he died the victor of all competitions, so kind of undefeated to the very, very end. Right. Mm. So Milo's fame has endured through the centuries. Right. As it turns out, there is a, a young man, I don't know his exact age, uh, here in uh, the town of Grand Rapids, whom I tutored in Greek. For a time, uh-huh. I think it was a year ago. His name is Milo. Is that right? Yeah. So this name is, and I couldn't, I couldn't teach him Greek without thinking of this great athletic character. Yeah. So that was charming. But that is yes. This name is making a, a little bit of a comeback, actually. It is. Is mm-hmm. it kind of making those kind of uh, those popular lists? Right. Of, all right. Interesting. So do you have a, a favorite athlete? Do you have someone who for, who for you is the kind of Milo? You know, the athletes that I We've talked oh, a lot about baseball. We have. We have. Um, my favorite athletes were never, I always, uh, you know, we, we talked about, you know, we want our heroes to be down to earth. Right. Um, I, I always gravitate towards the heroes who um, demonstrated uh, kind of beyond the press that they were decent human beings. Okay. So a, a basketball player that I really ad, ad, admired and, and continue to admire is, uh, do you remember Steve Kerr? Yes. He played on the Bulls. Yes. And he's since become a, a coach. Coach of the something. Uh, he just another. seems to be, uh, I mean, he was never, I mean, he's, he's not a Hall of Famer. No. Um. But he was and little for the game. A, a small guy, a great right. three-point shooter. But nobody would say Steve Kerr is in the top, you know, hundred greats of all time. No. But he just seems to be such a, a decent human being, and um, a, a smart, uh, a well-regarded coach. That's the kind of people I. So I, I that's kind of the first name okay. that pops to mind. How about you? You got a favorite athlete? Mm, boy, that's a tough one. Uh, I liked watching football a lot as a kid, professional football, and I emulated the running backs. You know, the star 
star players who would make the big plays and you know uh, shed all the defenders and race into the end zone. Sure. That was impressive. But sure. as I've grown older, I think I've gravitated toward less um, popular sports, probably with the exception of golf. I can't get into golf, um, <laughs> but I like tennis a lot. I like the sport of chess. I like to tell people chess is a sport. They just shake their head at yeah. me, you know, but track and field, these kinds of things. Yeah. Um, I loved Carl Lewis growing yes. up. I thought that he was amazing. Yeah. I, Florence Griffith Joyner, the famous sprinter. Fantastic. I've always admired her fantastic. accomplishments. I loved Kurt Gibson. Mm. Uh, the, the baseball player for baseball the Tigers, player For the right? Tigers and the Dodgers and, and, and other teams. But mm-hmm. yeah, um, Mr. Clutch, I just thought, yeah. People who can, you know, that, that Hemingway phrase, you know, grace under pressure. Yes. People who can, who can stand up there, you know, down three to two, bases loaded and can pull it off. That, that makes my mind explode. Right. Famous yeah. boxers. Uh, like some of the famous boxers also i mean it used to be a very popular sport now it's not very popular i understand yeah but can maybe overtaken by you know mma and yes you know, cage fighting that's correct <laughs> right. ultimate fighting right so did uh milo of croton did he have a, a kind of a pathetic end he what did. happened to he, him he did so this comes from a, a paper i found by one tom stevenson that's simply called milo of croton um i thought summarized uh, the kind of the, the tradition about his end very well he you, writes you're gonna read that for us yes Ultimately, our sources indicate that Milo's pride and his great strength brought about his downfall. That's a fairly typical morality play around the world, right? Um, The veracity of the evidence is difficult to assess, for it is surely informed by a theme running through Greek literature from the time of Homer about the fate that awaits men who rely solely uh, or too much on their physical strength. It appears that one day Milo was walking in the countryside near Croton, when by chance he came upon a withered tree into which wedges had been driven in order to split the trunk. Milo thought that he would finish the job, and so put his hands and perhaps feet into the cleft in the tree trunk and tried to pull the trunk apart by his own strength. Unfortunately, the wedges slipped out and the tree trunk sprang back together, holding him in an unbreakable grip. He was a prisoner of the old tree, an easy prey for the wolves, which roamed the area in great numbers. Ooh, That's grisly. That is gruesome. So the tree didn't kill him. It just trapped him there so the animals could come and just gnaw, out, gnaw off a piece of at, the time. At their leisure. <laughs> That's horrible. So I think you can drive these wedges into the tree and then... Um, each day you drive the wedge a little bit deeper and slowly the tree comes apart. Yeah. He thought he'd do it himself yeah. and he just got trapped. Got trapped. Yeah, it's awful. I think we, we, we did an episode a long time ago on, on like the death myths and I think we talked about this one. I uh, don't remember talking about it. I remember the episode on the death myths. Yeah. Uh, I think we did refer to this one. Okay. Um, but it's, uh, it's and you can often tell perhaps what um, you know a, a culture thinks about a, a particular person by the story they tell about how they die. Right. So Milo, I mean, he, he quickly kind of gets folded into kind of the cautionary tale about you know don't rely on two one on one thing of your of your aspect. Right. But if you compare it to the story about Sophocles, you know, who who dies performing the Antigone as a one man show at age right. ninety, right? Right. And at the height of his glory. And so with Milo, you know, he doesn't die, you know, picking up one last giant boulder. Right. He dies in this weird, pathetic kind of way with a tree. But it's comma tragic because he dies trying to demonstrate his great strength. Yes, but in kind of a, in a, in a kind of a, a, a weird, awkward, kind of off the cuff kind of Does way. Does that have the ring of truth to it? Uh, oh, maybe, maybe. Um, I mean, I, I think it's still more, he dies pathetically because, well, you know, he made, he made this moral mistake of, of relying too much on his arms mm-hmm. throughout his life. But yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Well, we have to start wrapping things up here, don't we, Jeff? We do. So, should we talk a little bit about his Nachleben? Yeah. So, I mean, we, there's that. There's, Milo was a great speaker of German, he as was, we know. Exactly. Um, just to say that uh, from the Italian Renaissance through um, up until kind of the uh, the early 20th century, 
uh, Milo was a, a popular theme for artists and sculptors. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's a number of paintings and, and, and sculptures of Milo um, and almost exclusively uh, depicting his end. Yes. And him kind of being tracked by the tree and then going to keep coming around um, with these animals coming around. There's a there's a, a, a kind of a grotesque kind of painting by Joseph Benoit Souvet. It's the 18th, 18th century, century right? right? Which shows him uh, with his kind of hand trapped in the tree and these various animals and wolves coming sniffing around. Um, I was reading one... Starting to gnaw on him, in fact. Right. More than sniffing if I'm reading this... <laughs> If I'm looking at this picture uh, correctly. Right. One commentator says that Milo almost becomes kind of the new Laocoon. Mm. And so, he, it, the, I, again, we're looking at this painting uh, in front of us, uh, listener. Um, but you can see that he's kind of twisted and contorted in the way that Laocoon right. is in that famous statue group from the second century. Yes, this uh, is the story, just so we're all on the same page, uh, from Aeneid Book 2, Laocoon and his sons who are uh, killed by snakes. Yes. And then that statue group, the Hellenistic uh, copy that you're talking about from yeah. the Vatican Museum. Yes, exactly. Right. So um, he becomes that kind of that notion of kind of the, the pathetic end, kind of the cautionary mm -hmm. tale. That seems to be the aspect of Milo's story that Renaissance artists and beyond kind of seize upon mm -hmm. for whatever reason. And yeah. I guess that there aren't paintings of famous athletes anymore, uh, but sports photography is a massive field. Sure. Right? And I guess there's something about the, I don't know, the, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. Yes. And can the... Um, can the photographer catch the athlete in that moment, you know, where they go from average to exceptional? Exactly. And that, that mix of desire on their face and pain as they're pushing their body beyond normal limits. Yes. Just for you and me, just another normal day at the office, basically. Right. right. Or I think what they often, those kind of those great photographs catch is kind of the, um, the seeming ease which the athlete feels in the midst of doing something incredible. Right. So I think, you know, that famous, you know, it's, it's more famous now as a silhouette of a butt of Jordan, mm -hmm. you know, kind of, Jumping from the free throw line with his his legs, you know, uh, right, his arms outstretched, exactly, right, kind of like a Vitruvian man. Now that I think about totally, it, totally, totally, right. I'm and, sure someone else has noticed that, but, but I wonder that's if that, what it is. It's the famous Da Vinci drawing of the Vitruvian man based on the um, Arte Architectura of Vitruvius, Vitruvius, yeah, where man is a sphere or is a is a perfect circle. I mean to say, but I the argument that the famous Jordan Jump Man, as it's right. called. Um, is someone to make the argument that the, the reason, one of the reasons we're drawn to that is because I think we we inherently see the Vitruvian man in that I would buy that argument. There's something kind of perfect about right. it, right? The balance in it, and also just kind of the ease of, kind yep. of just Jordan flying through the air. Or on, on the other end of the spectrum, you know that famous photograph of Ali standing over his defeated opponent, right? Where he kind of has his kind of his fist kind of curled. He's kind of got that that kind of grimace on his face. Yes, that he's just beat this guy. Right. Uh, that moment of kind of. Of, uh, of of triumph it's primordial it, it people is would it's say. very primordial yep, yep exactly so we have one more uh, work of art here to mention this is a statue group by a uh, pierre puget yeah pierre puget um a 17th century and a similar kind of thing where we see uh Milo it's a bronze with, group right yes and his hand is 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 caught in the tree and then we have a lion coming up behind him and uh, starting to to chomp on him and we see kind of that contorted um uh, grimace of agony on his face right have uh, you seen this one in person I have not. Okay. This I was just kind of uh, from kind of looking around and doing some internet research. Right. I think this one is in the Louvre. Is it? Um, but when I was there, I think we didn't even get to spend one entire day um, and it was packed. So it was very hard to see things. So I don't think I actually got to see this one. I've never been there. I've never been to the, I mean, it's, okay. I was so eager to see it, but the, just the circumstances weren't right. This yeah. was uh, January of 20. Um, so I, you know, we did get to see the Mona Lisa um, before it was covered with, I don't know, 
paint or soup or something. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. And uh, so got, it, was, it was even packed in January. It was it was busy. Really? Yeah. Okay. Saw some great things, but um, I could sp- I could spend three days probably in the museum. Of course. But the group I was with, they weren't as interested. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. You know how it goes. Yep. Hey, we got to get out of here. Yes, we got to wrap this up. Do we not? Before we do, uh, Dave, tell us a little bit about the Moss Method, would you? Yeah, so the Moss Method is a program I have developed for studying ancient Greek. It takes you from neophyte to erudite, which means you start out as a tender little shoot of Greek with little or no knowledge. And by the end, you have gained, um, I won't say mastery, but a massive amount of knowledge. And the reason is, uh, using the 19th century textbook of Charles Moss, I have developed this program which gets you reading Greek from the first day. You learn a few forms of the verb and of the noun, and then you dive right in to great stories from the classical world. And um, I have been you know, studying and teaching Greek for almost 30 years, and I put everything I know basically into this course. Fantastic. So what, if, they're, if someone's interested, where should they go? They go to mossmethod.com, not to be confused with Randy Moss, the former NFL player who oh, yes. has his own program, <laughs> uh, not for Greek. Uh, go to Moss Method, check out the free videos that I have. There are many, 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 hundreds, in fact, on my YouTube channel, just mm-hmm. in Greek. And then see if this program is for you. Um, it's uh, $350, and I've said before, I'll say again, there may be a better program. I'm not qualified to say. Let the customer decide. Mm-hmm. But in terms of value, I'm quite sure there isn't a better value. Fantastic. How about the LLPSI? Yes, so you can learn Latin with me, Abinitio, from the ground up with the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata course and textbook by Hans Orberg. Go to latinperdm.com and check out this course. It's $250. 33 different instructional videos. You've got assignments and quizzes and vocab and weekly office hours with me as with the Greek program. And so the videos have, you're teaching in front of I'm students, I'm teaching right? in front of students, yep. yep. They're asking questions, the questions you probably have about Latin. You get to email me, text if you want, interact in a variety of ways. There's really no reason not to learn one of these languages at this point. Fantastic. All right, before we go, we got people to thank. We do. We want to thank Mishka, our fabulous sound engineer who puts these episodes together so quickly and accurately. Yep. And also uh, the, the guys behind the great music that you hear. Right. Uh, uh, your buddy and yes. maybe hero, apparently. Kent well, I mean, musically, yeah. Okay. I right. I'm just admire his virtuosity. Anybody yeah. that can do something really well. I'm, I'm in awe of that. Yeah. And Scott Vincent, too, who you yes. also know. I'm jealous of this. Well, I got I mean, to meet him. I wouldn't say I really know okay, him. Okay. All right. But I got even, to meet him. We've exchanged emails and so forth, but he's an acquaintance. So so. Even, even so, I'm a little jealous. I would okay, love good. to meet Ken and Scott I, I, someday. I'd be happy I'm, to have I'm, your I'm waiting, jealousy. I'm waiting for an introduction. I don't think in, it's going to happen, introduction. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so hey. they provide all the great music yes. and, and we're grateful. Yes. Uh, so, hey, if you want to get in touch, if you want a shout out, we, uh, we haven't had a shout out for, for a few episodes now. It's been a while. Right. So drop a note. To, you can write to Dave, Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Do not forget the V. Yep. Send us ideas for episodes. Send us criticisms. Send us tirades and rants. We might read some of them. Can't promise you. Yeah. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you. Yes, we do. So what are we going to do in episode 126? Are, the, are we? Uh, this is also t- TBD? It's TBD. All right. To be determined. We're kind of on that loose summer schedule. A little right bit, yeah. yeah. We're yeah. going to get into something more uh, serious at some point. We yeah. promised to talk about classical education. Yes. Uh, one or two episodes. We're going to head toward Greek tragedy at some point and yeah. cover those in depth. Definitely. But we're just keeping it loose for now. Sounds good. And Jeff, I believe you have... The gustatory parting shot. Yes, this comes from the great, the very laconic Stephen Wright, uh, who said, I went to a restaurant that serves breakfast at any time. 
So I ordered French toast during the Renaissance. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.